Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to the MyFit Podcast episode 192. Before I introduce this week's guest, I have two very exciting announcements to tell you. First, as you may have already seen, I have introduced and started a brand new segment of the MyFit Podcast. Not only will you get a show on Tuesdays, but you're going to get a second show on Mondays, which is going to be a solo episode going over what I call weekly wisdom. Something I want to do more of is get some of my thoughts and my ideas out to you guys and and relate and connect with you guys a little bit more. And this is the perfect way for me to do so. So what you can expect is every Monday, a three to six minute clip shedding some wisdom, something I've been learning, something that's been on the top of my mind, or maybe something I've learned from the previous podcast. Hopefully it's an idea that I can plant into your mind on Monday and you can start to implement it through the week. So moving forward, you can expect Monday weekly wisdom with me, DJ Hillier, and then Tuesday, the normal MyFit podcast with a guest. The second announcement is if you are looking to get some new fall gear or give back to the MyFit podcasts, now is the perfect time to do so. I just released a brand new fall apparel store with t-shirts and long sleeves for the first time. That store is going to close on October 28th. So head over to the link in my bio on the MyFit podcast to get yours now. If you've been looking for the best way to support me in the show, this is the best way to do so. I appreciate you guys so much for supporting me, my mission, and the MyFit podcast. This week on the show, I am honored to chat with world-renowned psychotherapist Matthias James Barker. Matthias resides in Nashville, Tennessee, where he has devoted his life to helping his clients heal through trauma, help couples with conflict strategies, teach frameworks to navigate anxiety, and much, much more. Matthias has also created a massive following on social media with over 2 million followers which is where I found him and is also an area that I wanted to bring into the conversation. So throughout this one hour conversation, I kind of embedded in some of the videos, some of his most famous videos in the conversation. You'll see what I mean uh, after a little while. So some of the topics we got into were first, what does it mean to move towards something meaningful despite hardship? That's one of his bylines in both on his website and on his social medias, moving towards something meaningful despite hardship. After that, we broke down what is trauma. There's a lot of misconceptions, and I really wanted to break through any of those that people might have questions on. Then we talked about how the relationships with our parents shape who we become. If you've been to therapy or are familiar with therapy, you know that a lot of the conversations really start with your childhood. I wanted to break down what some of that nuances are, what the, those relationships looks like, look like when we grow up with parents that are supportive or maybe not supportive. After that, we talked about the trauma of always having to be the good kid growing up. Again, you'll find out very quickly, but trauma isn't always something that's super negative and very life destructive. There can be lighter sides of trauma or what uh, Matthias calls emotional trauma. After that, we talked about the power of the words we use to our children. Then he taught me a valuable lesson of being able to critique strategy, not essence. This has a lot of crossovers in the fitness space as well. Then after that, we both shared a love talking about one of our favorite people on earth, Chris Voss. We talked about some of the lessons that we've learned from the best-selling author and FBI hostage negotiator. After that, we talked about how 80% of conflict can be resolved without making this one simple mistake. Then we talked about why the deepest things are in the smallest things when it comes to your relationship. 
And let me close down by talking about marriage advice after 10 years of observations and studies. I told Matthias before this interview that I've been doing this podcast for about four years now, and this is one of the most challenging ones I've had to prepare for, mostly because he has such a wide array of knowledge and wisdom that I just couldn't decide which areas I wanted to dive in on. So hopefully in the future, I'll be able to bring Matthias back on for round two. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to leave a rating, review, and share it on your social medias. Your five-star feedback helps the show grow tremendously and helps bring on more amazing guests like Matthias. Without further ado, let's get to this insightful and fun conversation with a very famous TikToker and psychotherapist, Matthias James Barker. Let's go. My Fit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit podcast, you can now receive a free element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. Thais J. Barker, welcome to the MyFit podcast, man. It is an absolute honor to have you on the show today. Yeah, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm smiling ear to ear. I'm just really excited to get into some of the stuff today. First, I want to get into your byline. You have it on your Instagram, I believe your TikTok, and on your website. I think it's pretty powerful and a great place to start. It says, moving towards what's meaningful despite hardship. What does that mean to you? And what does it mean to find it to find meaningful stuff? Yeah. Well, I'm a I'm a psychotherapist and I spend a lot of my days counseling clients and specialize in doing like a lot of trauma work and and one of kind of the key, maybe just like philosophies that drives a lot of my clinical work, that drives just my personal life, that drives a lot of what I'm about is this idea that we don't necessarily reach those places of like happiness and fulfillment and wholeness by trying to get rid of all the bad stuff and cutting out all the hardship and cutting out all the things that make us uncomfortable. The emotions we don't like, even our bad behaviors that we wish we could quit and the the laziness, the, the irritability, the fact that we lose our temper, uh, that part of us that won't. Um, just put the addiction down, the part of us that, I don't know, retreats or feels numb when we want to feel connected, when we want to feel engaged. Like there's all these things about us or about the world that we wish would be different. And the pathway towards um, maybe realizing our deepest dreams in those domains is not by cutting them out, but moving into them, moving through. There's this story. Um, it's actually an old story from King Arthur, where he's sitting around with the Knights of the Round Table. And uh, they're waiting to go on an adventure. Actually, no, they're waiting to go on a meal. And, and then King Arthur says, okay, we have to wait for an adventure to present itself to us before we can have our meal. Um, and they're all sitting around just waiting for an adventure to arrive, which is a funny premise. But then uh, suddenly, I can't remember who, but someone has this grand vision of the Holy Grail. And and uh, it became evident to the Knights of the Round Table that they needed to go on a quest for the Holy Grail before they could sit down for dinner. Hey, you know, that's, you know, just just some light activity before <laughs> before dinner. and. Uh, then they go off and then they think, okay, where do we start this quest? Where do we start the quest for the Holy Grail? And the Holy Grail is like the symbol of transformation, the symbol of like renewal, the symbol of of putting things right. And then King Arthur tells the knights to look in the forest and find the place in the forest that's darkest to you and then start there. And there's this idea that when we look for the transformation when we look for the thing that's most precious, when we look for the thing that renews, that makes things whole, that puts things right, we start by actually looking in the place that looks the most thick and troubling and frustrating, the place with the most thorns, the place with the most brush, the densest part of the forest, the darkest part of the forest, that's where we start. And it's moving through that area, moving through that domain of life that we stumble upon 
what's transformative. And that's just a cool image buried in a very old story. And, um, you know, so I don't tell that story every time with every client. I, I guess I whittled it down to a shorter phrase to be able to reference it quicker. And it's just, yeah, that we move towards what's meaningful despite hardship, in the hardship, through the hardship. That's actually the space of the meaning. And so that subtle shift in perspective, I think, has, yeah, unlimited potential to renew and yeah, it's just infinitely wise. I love it. I didn't, I didn't think that up. It's not my, that's my phrase. It's, it's a wisdom that's been around for thousands of years. So I'd hold on to it dearly. Interesting to hear that what's most meaningful can also be something that was dark and traumatic. It doesn't have to be something that's very enlightening. And you talked a little bit about how some of your specialty is involved in healing trauma. This is a topic that I haven't touched very much in this podcast. So uh, if we could, I'd like to almost take a one-on-one yeah. view for some of my listeners how do you define trauma? Where do you start the conversation? And you know, how does it affect us? I'll just let you kind of have the floor about what do we need to know about trauma? Sure. Well, I think everyone has different things in their mind when they think of trauma. A lot of people think of like war veterans and right. experiencing something intense, like, you know, sexual abuse or something. And and I think, you know, just statistically, a lot of people listening are like, oh, okay, I probably haven't endured like trauma like that. Um, I haven't been to war, you know, I haven't had some of those intense experiences, I haven't been tortured, you know, or something. And, and so they're like, oh, okay, I don't have trauma. And, and I guess if trauma really just is kind of reserved for PTSD, if that's what we mean by trauma as people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, then yeah, you'd be right. You'd be, you'd, you'd be right in saying, okay, there's kind of a, a small proportion of the population around 20 to 30% of people that at some point in their life will experience post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's accompanied by things like flashbacks, um, intense avoidance of stimuli related to the traumatic event. Um, uh, you know, disassociation or feeling like you're outside your body, you know, you know, heavy sweats, uh, maybe disturbances in sleep, high, high irritability, you know, so some of those things, there's more, but can be accompanied by experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. And so that might be attached to, you know, example, that the intense car accident you're in where you had a near-death experience or watching someone you love die before your eyes, you know, so that could be trauma, but I kind of, I open that up a little bit broader and, and some people call it capital T trauma versus lowercase t trauma. Um, I, I'm not loyal to any particular way of describing it. I just, I would say that emotional wounds um, actually follow the same arc, both in how they impact you and then how you heal them. So trauma, what the, the way that you heal trauma is the same way actually that you would heal just maybe a lowercase t trauma or, or an emotional wound. And so, for example, you know, a big aspect of trauma is that it affects not just how you see yourself, but how you see the world around you. And then you will interact with the world. You will interact with yourself. You'll interact with your key relationships differently than you would have because of a key emotional wound. And so something, I don't know, like not feeling like you had a lot of attention from your mother growing up, feeling like you didn't have a very physically warm relationship. You don't really, really remember snuggling with her. You don't remember if you fell down and skinned your knee, like she'd help you get a band-aid, but there wasn't necessarily like cuddles or any sort of warmth. Most of us are pretty hesitant to label that trauma or neglect because we had food on the table, like we had clothes. But I would say like, well, you know, a pattern of that sustained over years and years likely resulted in a form of an emotional wound where you just felt hesitant, not just with mom, but probably in a lot of your relationships. So in, in that sense, it changed how you interacted with the world. And Perhaps physical intimacy was really complex for you, both in a romantic sense or non-romantic sense with, with people in your life. And you kind of see that as an obstacle that's kind of mysterious to you. It's like, oh gosh, why do I just feel so uncomfortable all the time, you know, around any sort of physical contact or like my libido or my the way that I interact sexually is just really a mystery to me. Like I, I don't understand why I, I'm so sexually active or I'm really under sexually active. Like I want to actually connect more or I want to be able to have a brake pedal to this thing, but for some reason it won't. I have no brake pedal. Like those mysteries that kind of surround, um, you know, whether it's something emotional, something physical, something psychological, uh, the things that confound us are often attached to these deep emotional wounds that I don't, I, I guess I don't really care whether you want to call it trauma or not, but they're worth facing. It's a part of the force that's dark. Maybe it's not as dark as someone else's thing that went through a war. I, I don't really care it because the, the, you know, the, command for king arthur to the knights was not go find the darkest place of the forest it's fine whatever is darkest to you and so it's okay for you to be like okay maybe i haven't experienced something like torture but for me not having any sort of physical contact with mom 
not feeling like my dad said he was proud of me, having that bully in fifth grade, that affected me. And it didn't affect me maybe in the same severity as maybe someone who went through war or something, but it affected me in a way that's actually really getting in my way. Like it's affected me in a way that's impactful. And I would like to be able to snuggle with my kids, but I feel awkward when I do. And I feel guilty when I feel awkward for, you know, my kid snuggles up on my lap and I feel just rigid and they can sense that I'm rigid. And I, I hate that. Like, why is that? Okay, well, let's go back and heal some of those wounds and give ourselves permission to call those wounds and and treat them with the honor and respect that they deserve. And And then I think when we propose that, it reveals rather quickly that we're super avoidant of that. That we don't want to. It feels really awkward and weird. A very similar avoidance to what you'd see in larger degree within PTSD. So yeah. there's a pretty popular Netflix documentary uh, called I'm Not Your Guru with Tony Robbins, came out several years ago. Mm. And one of the things that he talks about when he's working one on one and even on a stage for an audience, you know, thousands of people, when he's talking with somebody, one of the first questions he asks is, Whose love did you crave the most, your mother or your father? And they would kind of dive into that. And then he'd go to the next person. And every time he'd have his, these conversations, that was his very first question. We talk a lot about just, just in the beginning here about the importance of your relationship with your parents. And a lot of time, if yeah. you've been to therapy, if anybody listening, they've been to therapy, it, very quickly, it goes back to tell me about your childhood. Tell me about that question. I know it's not specifically your question. It's a Tony Robbins question. But what do you think about that question? Whose love did you crave the most, your mother or your father? What, do you, what insight do you gain from that? Hmm. Yeah, well, I think that it's going to be different for every person because they have different parents. But I, I think that, you know, mother wounds and father wounds can have different effects on people's psyche. And whoever was the primary caretaker for you, whether that was your father or your mother, the person that was kind of the point person when you were a toddler, you know, that person is going to be primarily the context by which you understand who you are as a person and you understand your own needs. Meaning, like, if I cry out as a baby and mom doesn't come and maybe she has a good reason, maybe she's ill and sick, maybe she, you know, she is going through something, she's in the hospital. So there's like this nine month period. That was, that was for me. My, my mom got super, super sick with my little brother, like to the point of almost, you know, I don't know if she almost died, but, but it was, she was incapacitated. Like, and so there was like nine months where I just didn't, you know, have a lot of physical contact with my mom around age like two. And yeah, like that kind of experience, whether intended or not, is going to have a really deep impact on you. And my dad was there and stepped in and, and was a caretaker for me. But that results in wounds, especially young wounds where we don't really have words for it. We don't yet have memories of it. It still affects you. And it will result in particular behaviors of craving affection, craving understanding. Um, maybe that results in insecurity. Maybe that results in a really bitter temper. Maybe that results in I don't know, uh, um, pleasure seeking and impulsivity uh, results in disruption of focus. You know, we, we sometimes aren't inquisitive enough into some of these things that we're really quick just to say, like, I just need to try harder and I just need to get serious. I just need to stop being so lazy. I need to stop, you know, making excuses. And it's like, well, what if there was just a broader context? What if you just don't have all the tools on the table yet? It's not like, Oh, let's just, you know, pat ourselves on the back and say, we can't, we tried because we had a hard childhood or because, you know, mommy didn't hug me enough. Like that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that's necessary data. If you're going to, you know, solve this equation, you need those factors in order to make sense of everything. It's actually in discovering those domains of wounding or in those places where your parents, maybe they're just humans and they made mistakes like anyone else. Maybe there was like a primary wound that they were actually, they should have not done. Like they should have actually put the alcohol down. They shouldn't have, you know, cheated on your mom. They shouldn't have whatever. And those things affect you. And if you don't have insight into how they affected you, you're going to be groping in the dark and it's, you're going to be punishing yourself and beating yourself up for not reacting differently. But there's a wound that's going unattended. So I don't know. I kind of went in some circles around that, but what comes to mind for you in that? No, circles are great, man. It actually brings me to, um, I want to share my screen here and show a video. Um, let's see here. If you're feeling distant from your partner, here's two things you can Somewhere along the line, mom and dad 
went through something and you kind of fell into the background, maybe not even on purpose. And it's not even that you want to describe it like that. It just felt that way. Like you kind of had to be strong. You had to kind of just rise to the occasion and figure it out. Or you had to kind of navigate a tumultuous situation between mom and dad. And you didn't know how to do that, but you did your best. But it left you feeling like I can't approach mom and dad. Um, because they just have a lot that they're going through, you know. I don't want to be a burden on them. And that is an expression of an anxious attachment style. A lot of us don't think about it that way. Where I have to appease, I have to be X, Y, and Z in order for them to be stable enough to be a place of safety for me. Have you ever thought about it that way before? That I have to be X in order for you to feel okay enough, in order for you to feel stable enough to be that point of safety for me. And that's a heavy burden for a kid to hold. So that was about the trauma of being the good kid. Super interesting. Caught my eye. Talk to me about where trauma comes in when you are the good kid. Yeah. It's harder to pin down, you know, because um, it's a trauma that didn't happen in one isolated event that you have a memory of. It's, it's, it's sometimes easier to identify if, if there was like a big car accident or if there was a bully that harassed you. Like you have distinct memories. It was this it happened at this time. And then kind of like what we've been talking about, there's these moments that it's all the stuff that didn't happen that should have. It's the, it's the gestures. It's the things that should have been said that weren't. And unless you have a cognitive awareness around what should have been said, what should have been done in that moment, you won't even have a context for the wounds that you hold. And, and that makes people uncomfortable because again, it feels like we're trying to like shove off responsibility, but I'm not saying that it's, it's putting responsibility in the right places so that you can take your proper responsibility. It's, it's not taking responsibility for something that doesn't belong to you because that's, it wasn't meant for you. So for example, that, that video that you shared, this idea of mom being sick, I even referred to that in my last example, this idea of like mom being sick, like what should have happened. It's like, that's a complex question that's going to be different for different people. Um, there's, there's a responsibility of the parent to help the child regulate and soothe when they feel distressed or fear. Okay, so maybe that could be done through mom, but maybe mom's sick. What should have been done? Well, that should have been done through dad. It should have been done through another primary caregiver. Um, there should have been some sort of social support to make sure that that need, that, that fear, that uncertainty goes soothed in a very physical way. It's necessary. I work with a lot of foster kids where that certainly hasn't been the case. They've been, you know, handed around from home to home to home. And there's no one in their life that, that just held them when they were really scared. Um, and then they get to a point where they just don't trust because no one's really just been there. And then, and then even though there's people there that might want to help them, they don't trust them and they're not open to them. And so then the question is like, well, what happened there? It's like, well, it's more about what didn't happen there. There should have been something there. There should have been safety. There should have been trust. There should have been warmth. There should have been love. There should have been someone to say the truth. And the truth was you crying in your crib or we can make it older. You, you failing math and then getting yelled at. That wasn't about you. That was about a caretaker who was stressed out and took out their anger on your math. And you shouldn't have had to receive all those words, all those insults. You shouldn't have had to, um, to bear that and then be grounded and sent to your room. You should have had someone that would pay attention to what you needed in that moment. And, and maybe you needed to focus harder. Maybe you needed to try harder in math, but should have taken that with a layer of sophistication more than just screaming. And um, that's what should have happened. So that bridge between the trauma of neglect, capital T or lowercase t, super complex, hard to sort out, different for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the biggest life lessons I've learned since being a podcast host is understanding the importance of the stories in our head and the words that we use. I think at yeah. a young age, I was just very much like, it doesn't really, you know, the word, words are words, you know, it's, it is. But once you get older, you really start to understand the power of our words. And if we're talking mm. about, you know, the, the words that we're saying from parents to kids, those can be 
life-changing or life-ruining sometimes, depending on what you're saying. I'm going to bring up one more video that I really enjoyed. It's depression in kids. And that's because a fundamental part of discipline is training a kid on what to do with a mistake. Like, is a mistake evidence that there's something wrong in me? Like, there's something wrong with me in my essence? Or does that just result of a bad strategy? And whatever you decide in that is going to stick with them. You know, you can see it too. Like, let's say your teenager isn't focusing on math and you come at them. He's like, why are you procrastinating? Like, get off your phone. Give me, give me your phone. Give me your phone. Gosh, like, you're so lazy sometimes. Why don't you just do your homework? Like, you know you're failing math, right? You know if you fail math, you're not going to graduate. You're not going to, then what are you going to do then, idiot? Like, come on. Get off your Can you see that? Can you see how the lesson is being imparted through the insults? Maybe you grew up with a parent like that, and, and as an adult, it makes it really hard to adjust to failure. Like maybe you didn't get into the program you wanted to, or you got fired from a job, or you go through a breakup, and it's like, why am I such a failure? Of course that would happen. I'm such an idiot. Like I'm so useless. I guess I just don't deserve love. I guess I'm just impossible to love. Yep, that makes sense. Can you see that? That connection between I do something wrong, that means something's wrong in me. So how do we change that for our kids? How do we parent in a way where we don't do that? Well, we need to critique strategy, not essence. So that could look something like, like let's take that grumpy teenager. Hey, I know you're not gonna be in the mood for this, but you need to do your homework right now. You've been procrastinating, and that's made it really hard to keep your grade up in math. And, and I know you wanna graduate. I want that for you too. So we gotta come up with a strategy together for how you're gonna do your homework. And I know you might not be in the mood for that. I know you don't want to come up with a strategy, but that's fine. I'll come up with a strategy for you in the meantime, and I'm gonna start with taking away your phone because I can see that's distracting for you. So if you come up with something different, that's fine. We can talk about it. I'm open to hearing different ideas, but let me know what you decide to do. Critique strategy, not essence. There's Critique strategy, not essence. I love that idea. Talk to me about it. Yeah. I, um, you know, it became apparent to me that when we attack someone's character, whether that's a parent to a child or even, you know, spouses or partners, like, in a romantic relationship, when you go after someone, it's like, why, why don't you even care? Like, oh my gosh, you're so lazy. Like you don't even, it, it, when you go after these heavy handed accusations that are meant to attach, attack their character, people get defensive, people push away, people, um, the, the lesson is never imparted <laughs> in, in the way that you hope that they would receive it. And with kids, there's something unique that happens is that they'll, they'll start to internalize those character traits. And that voice, that accusational voice will start to be internalized and either one of two things will be pointed towards themselves, like kind of like in the video where I'm talking about like, oh my gosh, I'm just so useless. I'm so pathetic. Like, I can't believe I did that. Like, oh my gosh, what, why, why did I even think I could do that? I'm so, you know, it, it'll internalize that voice will start to be pointed at themselves or they'll point that at someone else in their life. And they're losing their temper at their kids. They're losing their temper at their spouse. They're losing their temper on their employees. And that's because that that uh, energy that comes with that strong accusation, there's a certain power to it. It will shut someone down. It will create compliance in certain um, situations, but not the sort of compliance that encourages, not the sort of compliance that gets someone in deeper touch with their own values. It, it will merely have them appease you out of fear. It'll have them appease you out of self-hatred and guilt. And that is a powerful strategy for someone who wants to manipulate someone, but um, not something that adds to people's flourishing. And so in that video, I think I was thinking about the context of verbal abuse and, and what can happen when someone's really critical towards you or a parent is really critical towards you. But I think that applies to all sorts of different situations. And there's no, there's no empathy there, right? You're just making accusations. There's no, I feel you, I'm with you. Let's work on this together. This is more if I'm hearing you correctly, is you're, you're coming at somebody for their character and you're not, you're also not helping me here. So what, as the mm -hmm. child, how, what am I supposed to do here? Not only are you coming at me, but you're also not willing to walk through this math work or whatever it may be with right. me. There, there's gotta be a piece of that. I would imagine. Yeah, hundred percent. And that, that's why it's, you know, critiquing strategy, not essence, I think is the correction for that. It's like, cause it's not like every strategy people are using is, is great and fine and perfect or not all strategies are created equal. So it's like, yeah, you might, you might need to critique them, but you can even critique them with disapproval, like, or anger. Anger is not necessarily bad all the time. It's just what's being pointed at. It's just, you know, when we can focus in on strategy, not essence, when the critique is there, um, we have a way better likelihood of that not leaving traumatic wounds 
on our kids or on our employees or anyone else. Like, and the inverse is also true with encouragement, by the way, that you encourage character. You don't just encourage output, especially with kids. So instead of just saying, Hey, you know, good job on that. A, you know, that creates an expectation of like, okay, I get mom or dad's encouragement when I get A's. You can say like, Hey, I saw you studying last night. Like I saw you studying really late. I knew that you were really stressed about that test. You're really nervous about it. I saw how hardworking you are. You know, when you pulled that together, man, you got an A. That is awesome. That just shows how when you really put your mind to something, you can really do a lot. Mm-hmm. Can you see how that encouragement just sinks so much deeper totally. than just good and job be- on the A? Absolutely. It's being very, and it's being specific about the praise. I think, I think yeah. about that too in, you know, I'm in the fitness space, uh, Matthias. And so a lot of it could be, hey, good job on lifting that weight or whatever it could be. But really, you know, what we want to see as a gym is people that are consistent or their their lifestyle outside the gym matches their lifestyle inside the gym. I mean, those are the things that really move the needle. Those are the things that matter. But sometimes I think society wants to give praise to, I think about college football coaches, right? They are specifically mm. graded on their win-loss record. That's it. It's either you win, you lose. I don't really care what, what you're doing to the culture. So sometimes society can play a role on this idea of strategy over essence. What are your thoughts on where that plays a role into it? Yeah, it's a great thing to point out. I don't necessarily fault society for doing that. I think that when we're talking about these strategies, we're talking about building connection and intimacy. And so there's there's a certain amount of, I don't know, like emotional rapport that that i give like a a scout at at practice versus you know a mother figure and what's cool is like when you read the research like let's say like mary ainsworth or you know these people who formed something called attachment theory like what you'll see is that mom in these experiments kind of functioned as something called a secure base and what i mean by that is like the child would go out and explore the world but would always be looking back and checking in with mom so you take like a toddler two-year-old they're in a new environment. Let's say they're at the playground, they're at a doctor's office. There's like a little, you know, set of toys or something. They'll wander over and they'll play, but they'll always be checking back at mom and looking. And then if a stranger walks into the room, they'll kind of retreat back over to mom, sit in her lap for a minute. Okay. Stranger looks, you know, fine enough. Like, okay, I'll, I'll go back to playing. And so what's interesting is like society is an unpredictable force. Nature is an unpredictable force. You know, there's predators out there. Not everyone is out to make sure you're feeling great. Like, there's competition, you know, for the food. The question is, do you have that place of security? Do you have that place that you can retreat back to? And as an adult, that's actually the self. It's it's not just, you know, a parent. You know, as as a child, the reason the parent-child relationship is so impactful is because it's the context in which the the child learns how to be that secure base for themselves. And and what I mean by being that for yourself is the thing that you retreat back to are your own values, that what you believe to be true, good, and beautiful in the world. And that's the thing that's the reassurance that's the place of safety is i am in alignment i am on the path with what i believe is good true and beautiful in the world and so whether i get into college or not like okay i didn't get into college does that mean i'm a worthless piece of garbage no it's like it's it's like okay i'm i have a broader dream than just getting in school why did i want to get into school i wanted to play sports why did i want to play sports i wanted to do something that that i'm really passionate about i wanted to have a vitality in my life i wanted to do something that i felt like was in the center of my interest okay well there's there's you are a very sophisticated person with lots of different interests. And this is a very sophisticated world with lots of different ways to integrate what you're interested in, you know, into your world. So you can go on to play pro sports, but that's not the only pathway towards a meaningful good life. You know, it's, there's multiple ways to accomplish the larger values or to actualize the larger values that you hold in your life. And so that could be starting a sports podcast, <laughs> you know, that could be, uh, you know, a lots of different things that get you into that center of your interest where you feel like you're pouring your time into something that really captivates you. Um, I guess what, what I'm saying there is like, we, we rigidly attach onto outcomes when we don't have that security that's based on our values and what we believe is true and good and beautiful in the world. And when we feel grounded in our values, when we have that security that's attached to the self, then we can flexibly attached to our values, even with an environment that could be a little bit, I don't know, predatorial or chaotic. Um, it's like you transcend it. That, that's kind of what I'm getting at is you become a force in, in the world that even if society is cruel towards you, it, um, yeah, you have, you have a backbone, you have strength. That's not just your own, but it's grounded in the truth. Yeah. There's something I want to go. I want to go back to the accusation. One of um, you have a lot of very uh, popular videos on TikTok and on Instagram. I don't know if you know this, but your most watched TikTok video talks about the first five seconds and how couples can, 
you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, overcome a lot of potential conflicts. And I think this is kind of a similar topic. We mm-hmm. talked about talking to the teenager. This is can be very similar to your spouse. Can you delve into that first five seconds and what we can do better to improve our relationships? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, in the video I talked about <clears throat> this idea that we can kind of disrupt arguments just with accusations in the first five seconds that that just pragmatically don't work to our benefit. You know, so this isn't me saying, "Oh, you're doing it right, you're doing it wrong." It's more actually me saying it's just <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna clog up the thing that you're actually wanting to move towards. So, for example, like if I, you know, in the video I use this example, if you wanted to ask your partner to help you with the dishes and they're sitting there on their phone, you could go over and you could say like, "Hey." Oh my gosh, like sitting on your phone, like, will you, will you come help me with the dishes? Like, stop just laying around. You're just watching me do dishes here. Like, please get up and help. And then let's say they say like, oh, I'm okay. I'll get up in just a second. You could, you know, shoot right back at them and say, no, you're not. You're going to sit there on your phone. You're going to be there forever. Like you're always there sitting on your phone. Like I want you to get up right now and help me because if you just wait a minute, I'm going to sit here for like 30 minutes and you're going to forget. And my question, you know, in in the midst of a response like that is like, well, what do you think your partner's going to say back? Like, what would you say back if someone said that to you? You would say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to just sit here for 30 minutes. Like, why are you coming at me? Like, I don't always sit here and ignore you. Like, I'm not just being lazy. Like, I'll help you with the dishes. I'm just sitting here watching a video. I just want to wait for the video to be done. And they're like, no, remember last time. Remember last time when da 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 And like, you're off on this big argument because you came at them too hot with an accusation. And the accusation could even be true. That's actually the interesting thing is like, you could be completely right. But what an accusation does is it changes the topic of conversation. And so when you come at someone, you say, hey, no, you're not going to get off your phone. You're always, you always just sit there and you, you know, scroll forever. And then you forget that I even asked you to do it in the first place. That could be totally true that that happens very often, but they're going to get defensive. And then you're going to be arguing about whether or not they scroll on TikTok and forget what you say. And the original thing that you wanted to talk about was the dishes. You wanted their help with the dishes. And that got completely sidetracked. That got completely pushed to the side. Because you got in an argument about whether or not they listen to you. And it, it's like it, you just get convoluted. And so my fix for that <clears throat> is that you want to try to present a request to somebody, whether it's a child or, you know, a friend or a roommate or your spouse with, um, <clears throat> with an accusation free request that's followed by something like, um, well, I kind of break it down in the video a little different, but it's followed by something like an I feel statement. So it's like, I say, hey, I, I really like your help on the dishes. And can you get up and give me a hand here? And then let's say, okay, I hold on. I, just let me finish this video. I'll get up in a second. My advice in that moment would be like, okay, wait till they're done with the video because you don't want to get mad at them before something actually happens. Um, you don't want to preemptively punish them for something they haven't done yet. So wait, and then, okay, 20 minutes go by. And then you can go and say, hey, I'm really trying to get stuff done around here before we go to bed tonight or before we go off to you know, the movie tonight or before school or whatever. I really needed your help. I needed that. It was really discouraging to have to do this whole thing by myself and not feel supported. Now, you might say that differently depending if it was your roommate or your spouse or something, but in the in the sense of your spouse, like if you came to them and just say like, hey, I just really, I needed your help. I felt like it would be so much more effective if you got up and helped me right away so that we can get this done. I know that you want to get this done as much as I do. I know that you hate a stinky kitchen as much as I do. There's bugs. It's not fun. Um, next time, please get up and help me um, when I ask you. Um, the elements of that that I think are more effective is that you stated your common goal. You stated, okay, you hate the bugs as much as I do. Um, we want to get this done really fast. I know that you don't want to spend time doing this any more than I do. So we have a common goal here. And like, here's what's disrupting the goal. When you wait 20 minutes to start helping me out, I feel unsupported. I feel discouraged. I feel like, I don't know, this is all just resting on my shoulders. You don't like it when I'm irritated any more than I do. So there's, so there's, there's something that's not working about this. Here's the solution. Hey, would you get up and help me immediately next time? Would you just jump up and help me get this done? We could get it done way faster. We can get back to whatever we want to do. And at the end of that video, what I specify is that that likely won't like work. And what I mean by work is it won't force your partner into compliance. Like, I think that's the often the rebuttal when I start breaking down like conflict resolution skills like that is like, I've tried that and it didn't work. And I think what people mean by work is I said that and then they didn't get up and they didn't help me with the dishes. My only point in saying that conflict resolution strategy is to say that at least you're on topic, you're negotiating. That, that's how you start a negotiation. And the other example, you're arguing about something else completely. You're arguing about 
okay, was I on the phone? When I'm on the phone, I spent 30 minutes on the phone. No, I didn't. Like, you're not even talking about the thing at hand. At least in this example, you're talking about it. You're talking about what's not working. You're talking about your solution. And then you're inviting them into that. Now they might be like, no, I want 20 minutes to be able to sit on my phone. Here, you just do half the dishes and then leave the other half to me. Okay. They propose a different solution. You can negotiate that. You can not like that solution, maybe because you don't think they're actually going to do their half the dishes or whatever, but at least you're negotiating. You're talking about the thing. I think you have zero chance of it working in the other example, and you ha- at least have some chance of it working in this one. Um, the thing that changes the topic of conversation and makes these arguments just fruitless is when you throw in accusations, even if they're true, and then they get defensive, and then you're arguing about something totally different and off, you know, on the sideline of what you really want to be doing. And so, yeah, that was that video. It, it got a lot of traction. It was, it was good. It's, it's something that I've seen. I, I've worked that out with clients in my clinical practice. Like it's real. It's not, it's not just some cute thing to write, like in a blog, it's that's the real stuff. And the real stuff of it is it, no, it's not going to force your partner to compliance. That's the part that I think a lot of people don't talk about that. The function of it is that you keep negotiating. And I think you're winning if you're still in negotiation. You lose when you stop negotiating, you just start insulting each other and yelling, and then you just storm off. That's that's a fight that doesn't lead to anything. Like a conflict that can actually be productive is one where you're actually staying on topic. And the way you stay on topic is by avoiding criticism, just yeah. on a functional level. Yeah, well said. One of my favorite people on earth is a guy named Chris Voss. He wrote the book, Never Split the Difference. Oh, I love Chris Voss. He's great. Oh, man. He's been on the show a couple of times. We had a chance I've taken to a lot him. of his stuff as in therapy. Like uh, I've used a lot of his skills. I mean, they're like terrorist negotiation skills and when you're doing couples counseling it can feel like that sometimes so oh man <laughs> he he's absolutely brilliant we got a chance to go out last summer and have dinner with them and meet him oh and, cool um, so you yeah. said you had him on the podcast you had him on the podcast and his son right. um and yeah he's just he's an incredible guy and one of the things one of the techniques he talks about is accusation audit and mm. and also labeling and upwards inflection. I mean, like you said, there's a lot of things that come into play when you're talking about negotiating with your spouse. One of the things mm-hmm. he talks about is is labeling emotions. So something like, it seems like you're frustrated mm-hmm. rather than you're always so frustrated. I mean, there's a very different tone. And when you start labeling emotions, what it does is it creates what he calls tactical empathy and it gets you to see them through their side. You know what? I, mm-hmm. you know, I am frustrated, right? And, and then you mm-hmm. can start to dive into that. We're not talking about the dishes, but we're probably getting somewhere a little bit deeper. Or yeah. maybe after a really long day, they're on their phone, like you said. And instead of going right after the chore, it's tough day. Yeah, it was a tough day. They put their phone down. We start having a conversation about my day. You start to create some empathy with your counterpart to understand. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is this is where they're at right now. Without just coming in the door, head full of steam, telling them they got to do X, Y, and Z. What are some of your thoughts? I'd love to hear anything else you've learned from Chris. Oh, man, that yeah, that's great. I love that. I mean, Chris is great because he just has such. There's such a like skills you can put into practice immediately. I guess they're so practical. Like one that I one that I use from him. I like the inflection one a lot. I actually the inflection one was super helpful. So he he breaks down the skill of, you know, essentially taking a word from the last you know, or one of the last three words that someone says in a sentence and just repeating it back with an upward inflection. So I could say, you know, like, Hey, will you help me with the dishes? And they could say with the dishes. And then people will expound upon it. Or like, Hey, you had a bad, how are you, how you doing today? Oh, today sucked. And then you just say back today sucked. And they will go on and start explaining. And I mean, there's lots of different uses to have people explain things. It's just a great conversation tool. If you're a bit of an introvert and you're at a party and you don't know what to talk about, you don't have to think of anything to talk about. You don't have to think about topics. You literally just have to take like the last three words of what someone says and then just use it with an upward inflection. I thought it was a brilliant skill. skill. I used it with so many of my social anxiety clients. Um, I used it in therapy just as a therapist. I thought it was brilliant. It was just funny. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think some of those skills, they they open conversation, like you said, they build empathy. I mean, in his case, as like a hostage negotiator, they, they have a little bit of a tinge that you can manipulate people with them. And so that's always spicy and fun. Um, but yeah, I guess what what's your area of curiosity around those skills, or how do you? Yeah, mean? I, I think yeah. I think the labeling one that like you said was great, and as a, yeah, 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 a yeah. as a podcast host too, and as a therapist, like I, I've been in therapy sessions where you know they the therapist has repeated my last three words, and I want to be like, did you just get that from Chris Voss? I mean, it, because it works, because <laughs> yeah, it yeah. works. What does it do? It allows them to kind of let their guards down and just explain more. I think another one that you've talked mm-hmm. about is just the simple phrase of "tell me more." Yeah, yeah. Tell me more. It's such a big one, right? It opens the gates. It's a, it's an invitation to, okay, I know you just gave me a little bit, but I know there's a lot more behind the door. 
Yeah, I actually think I cited Chris Voss in that video too. You did. I think I, I, yeah, I used one of his skills. Um, yeah, tell me more is a big one. I think uh, just simple questions that let people expound on things. I think we're really quick to think that someone said everything they have to think on a topic, like on their first round. And little like taglines like that really do help you just kind of keep the conversation going and helping you open up someone's experience. That's that's really what building trust is. And I think that's what Chris Voss is getting at. Here's how you earn someone's trust, even in really hostile situations, even in situations where you have no reason for them to trust you, like you're interrogating them, <laughs> which is why his skills are so sharp because he developed them in probably the hardest situation you could imagine to develop them. But you know, even as a therapist, when we think about that task of how do you build trust with someone, it's like what you're saying. It's it's being able to empathize and express that you're empathizing with where they're at in life, that they feel like you understand their intentions that you understand what's important to them, that you understand their values, and that you're actually aligned on the same team. I mean, that's even like my conflict resolution skill from that video you referenced was like, you know, the first step in that process of getting your roommate or your spouse to help you with the dishes is you and I are on the same team. I know you don't like bugs in the sink as much as I do. I know you want to get the kitchen clean before work as much as I do. I know that you want this as much as I do. And now we're just talking about strategy. Now we're just talking about what's the best way to go about it. I mean, that's even referencing back to the kids stuff. That's a really big component of that well when i say critique um strategy not essence what we're doing here is we're talking about you and the kid probably actually have aligned goals maybe they don't care about math but they probably want to graduate too maybe not as much as you do because you see that like well you want them to go to college but at least maybe they 15 percent align with the goal <laughs> and the thing is instead of berating them for not caring about graduating as much as you do leverage that 15 percent that they already do align with you on and then make that the animating power behind them getting their grade up in math and it's not a hyper complex task. It's, it's often these small things like expanding their, you know, view of their own values with skills like upward inflection. Tell me more. It's, I don't know, just a simple question of like, I don't know how you've been feeling like you've been doing a math. What's math like? Like, what's your teacher like? How have you been feeling about your assignments? I've been feeling about the last homework assignment. I know that it's probably got to bother you too. I know that you don't love failing math any more than I love reminding you about it. It's like, it, my guess is it sucks. Like, tell me about it. Like, you want to, understand how it sucks and then they'll be like oh, i don't know it's it's just stupid and then a lot of parents will throw up their hands like oh, what do you say to that they're just like they're shutting me out it's like no 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 just say stupid back with an upward inflection it's stupid or it's stupid and they're like yeah it's like, she's always just picking on me she's picking on me yeah she's just like she always singles me out she makes me do stuff on the board even though she knows i don't know how to do it oh you don't know how to do it yeah i don't know like you can get into the heart of where someone's at. You can empathize with their experience with, with some of these subtle skills. And it's all towards the end of aligning in values, aligning in goals, and you know, breaking apart strategies, not breaking apart the person. I love it. I want to stay in the couples arena. Matthias, so a month yeah. ago, I got married. and uh, Hey, congrats. So, That's great. Thank you so much. And <laughs> it's been fun to hear a lot of people's marriage advice. And, mm. you know, we had one of the cool things we had at our wedding was a, a Jenga board and each each Jenga piece had a piece of wedding advice. And someday we'll take it all out and we'll be able to play Jenga and then we'll be able to read the advice. And it's just been cool to hear everybody's advice on it. And I'm so new to marriage that I'm very open-minded. I want to hear as much as I can, as much advice as I can about an area of life that I'm new to. And you have a cool video, one more that I want to show about how to uh, kind of eliminate the distance between you and your significant other. I really enjoyed this. Awesome. Well, here, before you show the video, yep. I'm curious, have you gotten any advice that you, that was like really terrible and you're like really bad advice that someone's given you yet? No, you know, I don't know yet. I think I'm, so, but right out the gate. No, I think it's, it's all been well-intended and it's all been good. Some has been just kind of funny and sarcastic stuff, but <laughs> there's been a lot of cool stuff. I think the one thing that's really stuck with me with is, 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 um, and I'll never forget it. Um, a guy at the wedding, uh, a friend of mine told me, this is a great day. It's a fun day. You'll always remember this day, but this isn't it. Mm. So this is, I said, this isn't it. He goes, I kind of gave him some, some Chris Voss back. I said, this isn't it. He goes, this isn't it. This is the easiest day, but this, this isn't it. And it was this kind of this realization of mm. marriage is not the party. It's yeah. not that big day that everybody celebrates. That's a fun part of it for sure. But mm. that's there's much more behind the scenes than what you're going to go through today. And it was very generous. It was hey, like, hey, enjoy today. You're going to love it. You'll look back at it for the rest of your life. But know that marriage is not what today is. It's all the days that follow. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's really warm. That's good. That's good advice. 
yeah, kind of makes you step back and think and humbles you a bit. It's good. Totally. I'll pull up this video here. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Here's two things you can do to turn that around today. The first is to invest attention, specifically in the small things and the superficial things. So whatever is capturing their attention right there in the moment. And in all likelihood, it's something you've paid attention to before. Like they're just scrolling on their phone or they're talking about work or they're talking about the kids or they're talking about the project they want to do on the house. And you feel like, okay, okay, what next? Here's what I want you to do. I actually want you to go a step deeper and look for the fear or the dream. Why does it inspire them? Why does it stress them out? Why does it capture their interest? Why does it provoke them? What do all these stand-up comics on their TikTok have in common? What are they all saying in common? Yes, she wants to build a garden fund, but what experiences in her childhood actually planted that interest in her? What do they want to rest from in that Scandinavian modern bedroom that they keep making their Pinterest boards out of? You know the deep things are in the small things? The meaningful moments of connection are in the things that we write off to be irrelevant. The things that irritate us, that's where the closeness is. Did you know that? We love the differences in our partner. That's what attracted us to them in the first place. And if we only explore, try to relay over the things that we have in common, that's not a big adventure. There's not a lot of overlap. You're, you're way more different than you are in common. So explore the differences. Have new eyes. Look for it, because that's where the depth is. So invest your attention and invest your curiosity. Look for the dream. Look for the fear. Understand the backstory. Look into the places that you've previously written off as irrelevant or boring or irritable or provoking, that's where the relationship that you crave is lurking. If you're feeling distant from your partner, here's two things you can do to turn that. Yeah, a lot there. Couple, couple lines. Deep things are in the small things. Let's start there. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you're in couples counseling, talking to somebody who's you know, maybe they've been together for like 20, 30 years and they start listing off all the things that are irritating and it's often just the places where their personalities deviate it's the places where i don't know they one person's really extroverted one person's really introverted so one person wants to invite friends over every night and has wants to have house guests and they'll come stay with us for six months like it's fine and then the other partner's just totally irritated by it. like what in the world like get them out of my house like no i just want to stay in bed and watch tv no i don't want to go out on the weekend i want to go to bed early on the weekend like so there's these there's these deviations in what is intuitive and innate to these people. And I don't know, the gut reflex for a lot of people is they want to come in and they want to help, you know, some conflict resolution. They want to figure out how to have arguments better, but then they want to like focus on the stuff that they have in common. And they, they want to, I don't know, they want to get back to the relationship that they felt at the beginning. And perhaps one of the places that I take people that is often rather surprising is maybe you should try dirt biking with him, or maybe you should try pickleball with her, or maybe you should try, you know, I don't know, ask her about her sewing, ask her about this. And then the reflex is like, well, I'm not interested in sewing. I'm not interested in pickleball. Yeah. I'm not saying be interested in those things, be interested in why they're interested because you're interested in them. You love them. And if they're the object of your affection, you're going to be interested in why they find it interesting and what you might find is that it's actually, there's more depth there than what you thought. What looks like, you know, in that video example, just like what looks like just a bunch of stand-up comedians. Like my wife does not care about comedy, for example. She just like, I don't know, she, her, she's a little cynical about it. She's like, why would someone stand on stage and say, look at me, look how funny I am. Like, it's just super irritating. <laughs> so she like, she has no appetite for comedy at all. But, you know, there's times when we'll watch each other's TikToks. We have a game where like I hold her phone, she holds my phone and you're allowed to scroll through anything that you don't think is interesting, but you know, you're scrolling through your partner's feed. And so you're scrolling through all things that your partner finds interesting that you may or may not find interesting. And then you can focus on certain things. So it's kind of like a, a goofy game. And, um, you know, so I, I'm scrolling through and a habit that we try to make is to stop on a video and then to inquire, why do you find this interesting? Why is this on your algorithm? What do you find ab about this? That's interesting. So for example, you know, my wife has tons of like toddler advice. We have a one and a half year old right now. So there's tons of like toddler advice videos. And, and I'm, you know, peripherally interested in that. I'm a therapist, you know, so if, of course I'm kind of interested in parenting advice stuff. So we'll watch those. But then there's like a video that will come up like about, I don't know, like fall fashion and I don't wear women's clothes. So I, of course, I'm not particularly interested <laughs> in like the, her women's fall fashion stuff, but but I want to know about like, what about it? She's interested in, I'm like, what outfits do you actually like? What, what about this grips you? Like, what are you? What are you thinking for fall? Like, what do you, what do you like about this? Okay. The big baggy sweater thing. Okay. Apparently giant blazers. Women are wearing giant blazers for fall. That is a mystery to me. Tell me why you think. <laughs> and so 
you inquire and then you kind of stumble into some fun, playful conversations. You talk about what you find interesting and you you will be interested, not because you care about fall blazers or in for fall, but because you find your partner's interest interesting. And that is kind of the animating force behind this idea of like the deep things are in the small things. Because I don't know, maybe you ask about a garden and what you want to plant and and then you realize like, oh, okay, cucumbers, we, we have to have cucumbers. Why? So my grandpa planted cucumbers. My, my grandma and grandpa, my grandma would always pickle them. My grandpa would always grow them. I have all these memories with my grandma pickling cucumbers. It's one of the few memories I have with her. I didn't get a lot of spend time with her. And what would she do? Oh, okay, well, we'd do this. And then we'd listen and sing songs, you know, when, when we did it and we sang these songs. Like there's incredibly deep conversations to be had. And why do you want pickles in the garden sometimes? But you don't know if you don't look. You don't, and, and maybe 90% of the conversations are fairly arbitrary. Why do you want pickles? I don't know. They go good on a sandwich. Okay, fine. Like, <laughs> but then maybe there's something deeper and something you didn't know that was there before. And so the process in couples counseling, you know, for some couples is go back and look over the territory that you thought was totally explored and maybe you'd find that you don't know it as well as you thought you do. Another analogy I use for this is I have a particular way that I drive home, you know, from work. And that's the route that I take. But if you were to tell me that I couldn't use that route to get home, like I couldn't hop on the freeway, I needed to use side streets to get home. I likely would drive through streets that I've never seen before. And you could say, do you know where you live? Yes. Do you know where your work is? Yes. I know like where I work, like the back of my hand, but maybe you don't know all the side streets to get to work. And if I told you, don't take the highway this time, take side streets, you'd come across things that you wouldn't have seen before. You'd find that the familiar territory, you've gone back and forth between home and work, you know, 20,000 times or something, you know, like, but you never saw that side street. And that's kind of the idea. It's like, take a different way home. Take a different way home with your partner. Uh, have the conversation you've had a million times. Ask him about what you're making in the shop. Like, okay, how was pickleball practice? Or how was, you know, what are you watching on TV? What's happening on The Bachelor? Have the conversation, but take the side streets. Like, go at it from a different angle. And, and you're not doing it because you care about the bachelor necessarily. You're doing it because you care about why she cares. That's, um, that's the heart of it. So yeah, it's, it's an, an idea I'm super excited about. I think there's a lot of depth there. A lot of depth. I would love to hear you spend a lot of time with couples. You've been doing this for a long time. I'd love to hear mm -hmm. just another piece. There's something else top of mind or something that our listeners can kind of gain from inside the, the room uh, that you're in. What's something that we can learn? Oh man. Yeah. I think, um, well, first thing that comes to mind is related maybe to that. It's, it's, um, the Gottman's, the Gottman team is, is a team of researchers that spent probably the last four or five decades just watching couples interact with each other. They had this, this Airbnb essentially where they bring couples in and there was cameras set up and the couple knew there was cameras set up. And, and so, you know, there's no like weird cameras in the bathroom, right? It's just, it's just watching them interact. And so the couple would spend a whole day, 24 hours, just, watching TV and talking about nothing and essentially just killing time, you know, in this living space, you know, in this Airbnb and the comments, what they did is they just literally like with tallies and check marks, just kept track of the different kinds of conversation that they had and what happened functionally, like within the conversations. And then, you know, they did that for like 10 years with thousands of couples. And then they watched and saw which ones got divorced and which ones stayed together. And then they went back and looked over their notes. They were like, okay, what did the ones that got divorced do a lot of? And what are the ones that, that stayed together do a lot of? Pretty cool experiment, right? It's like- I, I want to hear. I'm ready. I know. It's like, what, what do you, they do? What do <laughs> and they called them the masters and the disasters, which is, which is funny. And uh, the masters, they didn't actually have less conflict. That was actually a strange thing that they found. They still had a lot of conflict. But then they found that they didn't use accusations nearly as much. Um, they used way more humor in their conversations um, and, and in their, uh, even in their arguments to try to diffuse some of the tension. Uh, they took a break when things got really heated and came back to the conversation when they were a better state of mind. The people who, you know, the, some of the disasters, so to speak, I mean, that's a little pejorative, but we'll call it because they got miscalled that, is uh, they, they kept going even when things got heated and things escalated and screaming matches and they kept going, they never pumped the brakes, right? Um, the, the, the masters, they turned towards each other and they were interested in the things that other people are interested in. So that's, that's really like the study that animates that video and a lot of my dialogue there, because it's a really powerful discovery that took like 40 years to figure out was 
the powerful relationships, the masters, they're not the people with the most erotic connections or the most like they're always buying each other flowers. They're always going on big vacations. It's not the people with less amount of struggles. Like those people had, you know, children with disabilities and loved ones die and, and illnesses and chronic pain. Like there's all of life was encapsulated with both the masters and the disasters. There's just a few things that were different. It's that I didn't come at your character when we were mad at each other. I tried to figure out the strategy. I, we took breaks when things got heated and we tried to cheer each other up, even in the midst of feeling frustrated and angry, even with some light joke, not mocking the other person, but with a light joke or, or with um, a little bit of affection and admiration, taking some responsibility when I can, instead of getting defensive, instead of just trying to, to put up a, a stone wall in front of you. And then when you tried to get my attention about something that really mattered to you, I didn't ignore you. I didn't turn away from you. I didn't make fun of you for it. I listened. And I took an interest. Like, oh, it would be great if we got new couches for the living room. Oh my gosh, you're always spending all my money. You know, that's that's like a turn away. That, that's that's what they check on the check mark. <laughs> that's sort of like, okay, they turned away from that one. Versus, well, what are you thinking? Uh, what what do you want for the living room? Okay, maybe we can put that in the budget. We probably can't afford that now, but we could save for it later. Um, or maybe let's sit on it for a week. Let's think. I was thinking maybe something a little different. I was thinking this. What do you think about that? It's the, it's not necessarily people who always agreed with each other. It's not people that always got along. It's people that just made some subtle shifts of when you try to get my attention, I'm going to be interested in it. And then I'm going to deal kindly with you and listen. And that doesn't mean I'm a pushover. That doesn't mean I sugarcoat things. That just means in my approach, I critique strategy, not essence. I mean, there's a lot of those insights. There's, there's a whole list of things, but those are some of the highlights I think that are really powerful for anyone. And I think immediately actionable. I mean, something that, that I try to think about each day when I walk upstairs from, from work and, and, uh, and greet my family is can I turn towards in these moments instead of turning away? So cool. One of the big themes of my wedding and the themes of uh, Ashton's relationship is being a team. It's been a, mm-hmm. a word that we just use a lot. I know it's, it's, we're not the first people to come up with it, but uh, it's something yeah, that yeah. we're, we're always considered ourselves uh, teammates and we're always mm-hmm. on the same team. It's us against everybody else. And when I think about a good team, there's a lot of things that go into, into great teams, but one thing a great team doesn't do is talk bad about the other teammate. Yeah, talk about yeah. this a little bit online with ta- how you speak to your kids about your spouse or at work to your employees about your spouse. Talk to me about the importance of that and kind of continuing that theme of creating a rock solid team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're getting at there is it's kind of some of what we've been talking about, about critiquing strategy, not, not essence, but maybe to take it even a step deeper, it's it's not necessarily always giving the person the benefit of the doubt and always assuming that everyone's always doing the best that they can at all moments and and always being optimistic. But there's something else the Gottmans kind of found when they're observing people is that some of the masters, they just waited to get the evidence before they got mad. And that was actually a pretty powerful step. It's like if I'm on your team and there's some sort of gray area, there's some sort of misunderstanding, there's, there's an area where I'm not sure what's going on. So for example, you're home late. Like... It's 6 p.m. I can't get a hold of you. You said you'd be home at 5.30. Where are you? I have a couple options. I can get really mad in my head and be like, oh my gosh, he was sitting there on TikTok, you know, or he's working late or he's talking to the boys or whatever. Like he's, he's, uh, he, he doesn't care that I spent all day cooking this meal, that I'm home with the kids and they're fussy and they're frustrated and we got to put them to bed soon. And, and I have to shoulder all of that. He's inconsiderate of me. And so you're working this whole narrative up in your head about what you think he's late for. And then he walks in the door and you're just like, why are you late? So you're just like this, all this angry energy is just thrust at him. That's kind of what I hear when we are talking about, okay, are we on the same team? It's refraining from getting mad before you have any evidence. It's refraining from punishing somebody for what you think they're going to do in the future before they do it. And it's not necessarily replacing with the opposite of just, you know, always giving the benefit of the doubt, assume that they have a really great reason. Because people get frustrated at that, especially cynical folk. They're like, like, why would I assume the, bene- the, the good? And I'm like, I'll give it to you. Fine. You don't need to sure. assume it was good. Just don't assume anything because you have just as much reason to think it was something good as bad. And so if you, I don't know, if you don't want to be optimistic, like I won't hold that against you. Just wait. And then when they get home, be like, why were you late? And then if they were late because they were talking to the boys, then you can get mad. That's fine. Just again, don't be accusational about it, but, but you're totally allowed to express your frustration. Like, 
we all would. And uh, just that simple act of having a bit of patience before reacting is a really powerful move. Contempt, that's really the word for proactively getting frustrated, was the number one predictor for divorce that the couple wow. It's when I've made a decision about your intentions. I made a decision by what, by, about what you meant by that. And I made a decision about what you're thinking before you've told me, before I've seen it, before you've done anything. And often that's informed by patterns of the past. So it's understandable why people get there. But when you sink into that mode of just assuming the other person is not on your team and you act that way towards them, it's a recipe for, yeah, things falling apart. So yeah, I'd leave you with that. Awesome. Great advice. Matthias, thank you so much. This was so much fun. It went so fast. For my listeners that want to hear more from you, learn more about you, where can I point them? Yeah, I'd say I'm pretty active on Instagram and TikTok and got lots of content there. Um, I do different workshops on different topics. If you want to deeper dive into things, something more than like a one minute, two minute video. And so I have like a couples conflict workshop. Um, I have a trauma workshop for you know anyone that related to some of the stuff earlier in the episode. So if you want to take a deeper dive, those are the places I give the most meat. But of course, dive into my podcast or Instagram or TikTok. You'll find lots of stuff there. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.